I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silvercore, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silvercore Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Get this thing up. Today I'm joined by a man who, over a long career, has acquired a very specific set of skills. The hunting we'll be talking about in this episode is that of the two-legged variety and the world of international child recovery. I'm joined by the owner of Pegasus Ops, which locates and rescues missing and kidnapped children worldwide. Welcome to the Silver Core Podcast, Jay Jordan. Hey, Dan Travis. Thanks for having me on, mate. Jay, like, this is not an occupation for the faint of heart. I mean, what is your background and how did you get into this line of work? I think in general, the majority of things that I've ever got into in life, apart from the military, I fell into it. It's like um, the universe has just brought everything together and pulled me in a direction that I was supposed to go to. But um, nine years old, I knew I wanted to join the military. Um, I joined the military at 16. Um, when I was in the military, I served in Northern Ireland, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, and Iraq operational tours. But th- there was always this thing inside me that the army was never enough. So when I got out of the army, being the boisterous lad that I was, <laughs> I ended up I ended up taking all my savings from the army and uh, and blowing them. And uh, when I went over to Milan, and I stayed in Milan for a good few months, and was living over there. Um, not the place for an ex young soldier to uh, to hang around, considering <laughs> they spend millions teaching us how to party and drink, mm-hmm. and it's ten, like ten ten euros a drink over there. It was crazy. No kidding. Uh, so uh, so my savings didn't last very long anyway. But um, I ended up coming back to the UK, and uh, and when I was back in the UK, um, I ended up living on the streets for a bit. It didn't phase me in any way whatsoever. I started writing my book. I had ambitions. I always knew that I wanted to go somewhere and do something bigger than what I was doing anyway. And uh, and when I was when I was on the streets, this is like a very long story condensed into uh, a very short period of time. Um, right. I, I used to check my emails at the, the local library. That's pretty much the only place that I would hang out, really. Um, right. I received an email from one of the lads in the army. They... Uh, they get in touch, tell me that there's a contract going out in Iraq. So uh, I sent off an email. I didn't even know how to write a CV. That's that's, that's how bad it was at the time. I hadn't got a clue what a CV was. I was 22 at the time when I got out. And, and you're living on the streets for how long? Yeah, six months I was on the streets. Man. Was, yeah, uh, okay. Well, it, it weren't too bad. I mean, you know, I used to beg for a couple of quid I'd go down to the local boozer which wasn't far from where I was sleeping anyway and right. then I'd talk to all the old veterans down there and then uh, and then they'd spin their dits so I'd spin my dits and it always <laughs> made up for a good night <laughs> kept me warm <laughs> yeah that's not too uh, bad not too bad yeah. the best of what you got oh you got it yeah but um, when it came to the fact of uh, of sending this email off I literally mm. um, condensed my entire army career into a four-line paragraph, 
um, asking if you got any jobs going, basically. Uh, I didn't think anything of it, didn't think anything would come of it. Uh, less than a 24-hour period, I had an email in my inbox um, saying that certain person was going to call me. Um, and again, I still it still didn't register. I didn't know what the job was. I didn't know what I was applying for. I just knew that I'd emailed somebody asking for a job in Iraq. That's all I knew. Mm. And then uh, I ended up uh, going with my best mate from school. I was helping him navigate through, uh, through Birmingham City whilst he was doing deliveries. And the signal was really, really bad. So uh, as, we, as, we, as we're driving down the motorway, and we're just about to come off into some country roads where the signal's really bad, I see that I've got a missed call. Um, being the young lad that I was and being a little gobby mm. child, yeah, in the mentality of a child, I was like, who the fuck's that? Yeah. <laughs> it turned out that it was um, a previous regimental sergeant major of um, the SAS. Mm. And then that military training kicks in and my heart drops thinking I've just gobbed off at an RSS. I'm not in it anymore, but that, that's what's inside my head. Oh, for sure. Um, you don't lose that. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you definitely don't. That's, that's the type of bloke. No matter what, what age you are, you will always stand to attention to him. Like, you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, he gets on the phone to me, he calls me back, calm as anything, and turns around and says, uh, right, um, I'll have a ticket for you within a week. Um, this is what's going to happen. These people are going to get in touch with you. And when you get in country, I'm going to help you write a CV. So I was like, all right, looks like I've got a job. Wow. That took me on a wild adventure. It really did. Um, I spent eight years over in Iraq as a private contractor. Uh, and it was, no, no, sorry, five years in Iraq as a private contractor. Um, it, it was crazy. The minute I landed at the airport in Iraq, I, again, I still didn't know what the job was, didn't know what I was doing or anything like that. Right. All I knew was that I was going from one country to another country, and I know how to shoot. That's literally all's on my mind. I get picked <laughs> up at the airport. Seriously, I don't got a clue what it was. I get picked up at the airport, and um, the operations manager for the company uh, picks us up. They look at me because I was 22 years old, skinny little kid in their eyes, because the average age of uh, of the guys that were out there at the time it was anywhere between 35 to 45. We even had like 65, 75-year-old Vietnam vets out there. Like. Really? And these guys are like, yeah, seriously. Uh, a mixture of Americans. We had a lot of South African, like the old school South African mercenaries that used to go into countries in Africa and do coup d'etats and all this sort of stuff. Right. I didn't know anything about this at the time, but all I saw was big burly blokes around me and there's me looking like a stick. And they're like looking at me thinking, nah, there's got to be something, <laughs> something, something's not right here. Thinking that kids came on board. So they threw a body armor at me. They threw uh, a weapon at me, an AK-47, and asked me if I knew how to use it. And I was like, yeah. And they threw me in a vehicle. And then next thing you know, we're driving down the road, uh, Brute Irish, from the airport over to the green zone. And there's a vehicle in front, and it's like ramming cars off the road. You've got a vehicle behind us, which is coming up on the side of us, and it's, it's doing all the blocking drills to protect this vehicle. And that, that was probably the first initial moment where I realized I was getting into something that I had no clue what I was about to do. Okay. And, and it was like those thoughts that were inside my head, it was a case of, oh, what the fuck have you got yourself into here? Like, you know, didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't. Totally off the deep end, eh? It was weird. It really was. And even to this day, I mean, that was in 2004. Um, even in 2016, me and my mate took on a contract out in Kajaki in Afghanistan. And we both got there and we was both going, what are we actually doing here? Because we did exactly the same thing. Took a job, not knowing what it was, just knowing where we're going. And that's it. It was crazy. It's, it's mental how it all worked out. But... 
I get taken over to uh, to the green zone. It's around lunchtime. We don't have our ID cards issued or anything like that, DOD card cards and everything for the US bases to go into the US DFAX. And uh, then uh, we go down to a cafe called the Green Zone Cafe. This is a tin shack building. That's all it is. Uh, they sell pizzas, stuff like that, um, plastic tables, plastic chairs. Standing there, we order a pizza, and all you hear was like three thumps. And it's like thump, thump. Three mortars were launched into the air. Everyone took cover mm. under these plastic tables. And I remember clear as day that the first thought that came through my head, and this is like within an hour of actually being in country now to start this new job. And the, thir- the first thought that was inside my head is, why are they underneath plastic tables? I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't understand it. The concept of them being under plastic tables was more shocking to me than the fact that we got three mortars in the sky heading towards us right now right the first one explodes and it's like close enough the second one it's a lot closer and then the guy that i was with is a guy called louis really good mate of mine he was he uh he ended up dying out there he did unfortunately but um he turns around to me and another guy that had just flown in he said uh it's either gonna hit us or it's gonna just go over us and i'm standing there still thinking why are these guys on the plastic tables and chairs and why are we still standing there? But because I was because I was like twenty two years old and these guys were these guys were like hardcore, you could see that. You know when you get that look into someone, you can see it and me as mm. a young I, I would still consider myself a kid at that age, to be honest, with the mentality I had leaving the army. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at these guys, I was like, I'm not I'm not moving. I'm not I'm not doing anything here. I'm not, I'm not going to move until that bloke tells me to move. I'm not going to do anything until that bloke tells me to do anything. He just stood there, calm as fuck. Couldn't believe it. The third one hits. It goes just over us. And then everybody stands up from underneath these tables and chairs and bomb bursts out of the building. The building is now completely empty. Before we went in there, there was no tables and chairs to sit on. Louis just goes over, picks up a chair, sits down and waits for his pizza to be, do- be delivered. And I was like, this is, this is, this is unreal what's going on here. But as I went through the process of being over there and I spent five years over there and I excelled and excelled through every single stage that I went through, um, you get to see how that does change you as a person, how that grows you as a person, because then you're the one that's standing there picking people up from the airport and they're coming in going through the same experiences that I went through. So I started off doing that. Yeah, I started off doing that. And then, uh, in the end of 2008, I left Iraq. I went over to West Africa. Um, I did a bit of maritime on the uh, merchant ships, which was pretty terrible um, in the Gulf of Aden uh, against Somali pirates. Never had any contacts myself on that. But um, the, the journeys themselves were more horrendous in the fact of the conditions that you're living, living under and the way that you're treated by the actual officers within those ships. Um, right. So it really wasn't for me. Well, how long did you uh, do that for? It was uh, it was sporadic. So they'd get a ship. I'd go out. I'd go out for two weeks, and I'd come back, and then I might be on a different contract, or I'll be waiting around for another ship. So, and that was going through the period of uh, end of two thousand eight through to uh, the beginning of two thousand ten. Really, did that pay? So well? I did that. I, I went. Is that, pay is that something to pay the bills? Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100% it paid the bills, right? That, yeah, it was literally free money. Uh, you go and stand on the ship, yeah, I mean, uh, you can literally do anything you want. All you got to do is, as long as you do your duties on the ship, the majority of the time you end up working out um, uh, whilst you're on duty anyway because you're still on the bridge doing it, and then you use the bars and the railings and stuff like that to right. keep yourself awake. Um, and then uh, the food, you, you're just dropping weight and getting ripped anyway. It was mad. 
and you're getting paid good money for it. So, uh, so I didn't complain too much. <laughs> <laughs> Guess not, no. Uh, but um, I did some contracts out in West Africa uh, in 2009 down in uh, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, which was recovering a load of equipment from an old sulfur mine, which was just after a year after the presidential assassination. It was going through elections. So it was a crazy time because basically um, all of these organizations were, uh, they were killing each other, killing electoral candidates and things like this. And the way they do it is a, it's, it's a brutal manner. I don't know if you've ever been to Africa and you know their cultures and traditions. But they've got no problem to cut someone's heart. Yeah, they've got no problem to cut someone's heart out and eat it because they think they're going to get the strength from that person to transfer them to themselves and all this. It's weird. Uh, on that contract, that, that was probably one of the most stressful contracts I've ever came across um, in the aspect of how arduous it was and the difficulties we had in moving that equipment um, and obviously the threats that were against us. And our prime threat that was against us was the police um, really? as strange as that sound considering we were licensed and we were all good in that country and we were doing the right thing we had no problems whatsoever the police surrounded us every day and I remember there was one day where and again these stupid thoughts come inside your head uh, we had at least 10 of these um, police officers with AKs all circled around me and one other guy we both had Glocks and that was it and they were all pointing their weapons at us, demanding money. In the, in the course of those two months, we paid out a lot of money in bribes just to stay alive so we could actually get that equipment out of there. But when I was standing in the middle of that circle, it was literally, it's those stupid thoughts that are inside your head. And I was thinking, all I'm going to do is just dive on the floor because it's going to be a comical scene because they're all pointing <laughs> weapons towards each other. And right. that's all they I could think of myself continuously through that entire <laughs> ordeal. It was like, what are you uh, doing here? <laughs> well, I guess in uh, hindsight, I guess in hindsight, when you look at that, they they wouldn't want to slaughter the, the golden goose there. If you guys are shelling out that kind of coin to yeah. in, in bribes, it it's just a show. But when you're in the in the thick of it, I mean, you're looking down the business end of a firearm. You, you do what you got to do. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, um, it, it turned out, I think it was about six figures that they ended up paying out in, uh, in bribes for that two-month contract. And then, but we got the stuff out of there, and that's the equipment that we got out of there was worth millions, like it was. Mm. Um, but then from there, to the end of 2009, I got I pulled up a good contract out in Afghan, and I went out to Afghan, and I spent 11 years out in Afghanistan. I only got out of there last year. Um, really? And I was all over that country, and I was on all sorts of different projects. It was it was mental. Um, uh, great money at the start. I mean, it's phased out in the last last few years, really. Um, but it was something that I was doing good. It was what I wanted, what I was doing in Iraq that was starting to die out in Iraq, um, driving around in free vehicle convoys, actually doing your job as close protection, protecting those that need protecting, whether that be NGOs or military officials or whatever. Because um, it was dying out in Iraq, I was getting bored. But going back to Afghanistan, I was able to do that again down in Helmand province. And I had more vehicles. I was able to train my own team again. And we was able to go all over those dangerous areas again. Um, so, so I enjoyed the work again. It, it, it relit that fire inside me, which was fantastic. Right. There's loads of little jobs I've done in between. Um, I worked on the Prince of Abu Dhabi's yacht. I used to provide maritime protection for him when he was going through the Gulf of Aden down to the Maldives and Seychelles, which was mega. Um, I got paid to go to the Maldives and Seychelles. Um, 
And there was also, uh, I got into Mali just after the coup in Mali, the coup d'etat in Mali, right. when the Tuaregs took over in the north. Um, that was basically close protection on a um, the Chinese news network, CCTV. So uh, so that was a good contract as well. But overall, majority of my time has been in uh, Afghanistan. Right. <coughs> so Long so career start, in, that, in that industry. <laughs> so you start by doing... Uh, asset recovery, vehicles and and, uh, and and equipment, and you say, hey, this is pretty good. Uh, let, let's look at doing human recovery, see if we can start recovering yeah. children. Like, How did that leap start? Because it's sort of a niche industry. 100% it is, yeah, without a doubt. So I started, the prime focus of everything that I've done is close protection, so that's looking after people, and there's always been that that, that mission element of looking after mm. people in itself. Um, there's been contracts where I've done the, the, the recovery of assets and everything like that. But in 2012, the end of 2012, um, I was in Afghanistan, and I received an injury, hearing injury. My left ear went, um, my eardrum withdrew back into my ear. I couldn't hear nothing or anything like that. So it was it was hilarious the way that it happened, as bad as it was, because literally I do not want this or wish this upon anyone because it is horrendous to feel this. It's like noises go inside your head and it's all jumbled up. It's just crazy. Um, I could sit there by myself. I've got no problems, but the slightest noise comes into that room and that's it. My head's a mess. It's like, it's just so confusing what's going on. But really, the company, yeah, seriously, the, if you lose your hearing in any way whatsoever, my TV was full blast. I could watch it and I'd be fine. Kids come into the room and talk at the same time as that. It's bad. Go to a bar. The ambient noise in a bar would literally just destroy me. I'd be there with a headache within an hour and I'd have to leave. It's yeah. horrible. And, and you still uh, suffer from that now, I take it? No, six month temporary hearing loss. It oh, eventually really? came back out. Yeah, 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 so I was quite lucky in the aspect of it. Um, but the company had to send me home. And like I said before, this is where the universe comes into it. This is where the universe has always pulled me into the right directions to put me into the right place at the right time. Mm. Um, the last contract where I got this injury that I was working on, I was working with a guy that was um, originally, he grew up in Lebanon. He's, he's British, but he grew up in Lebanon with his dad and everything like that. All his best mates are in Lebanon and stuff like this. Spent most of his life out there. Doesn't live there anymore at that time. So I met him on that last contract. Then I got injured. And then whilst I'm waiting to go home, a guy that I knew, um, and to this day, I still do not remember how I met him, but I'd been talking to him for years, and he was always asking me for a point of contact wherever he was, someone that could go in and help him to do what he wanted to do, whether that be advice or whether that be a physical operation. Never asked any questions, gave him a name, gave him a contact detail, and then that was it. Didn't have any interest in what he was doing. All I knew that he was in child recovery. At the same time that I was waiting to go home, he gets in touch and asks me if I can go over to Lebanon to help him out on this job. Um, didn't have a clue what the job was again. But I was like, well, I seem to be in a position where I'm just going home and I've got nothing to do right now. So, yeah, why not? So, uh, so I go home. He meets up with me and uh, I was living in Cyprus at the time. He meets up with me in Cyprus. Uh, we have a chat about what it is. turns out that a mother and child were being held against their will. Father had kidnapped the child from Australia, and um, basically he was connected to Hezbollah. The mother and child were in a Muslim-controlled town, which is a Hezbollah-controlled town, and uh, and there was armed personnel all around them all the time, and he couldn't figure out how to get out of there. So I flew over with him. 
<clears throat> and a long story short, because I'm not going to go into too many details about this, because I do have a book out which tells you all of the details. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll talk but, about um, that book too. We will, yeah. But um, I go over there. Um, within the first seven days of me being over there, it led to um, us being blocked in by a vehicle, guys jumping out with weapons, AKs and 47s. Um, us getting around that vehicle and being chased out of town at gunpoint. Um, we had um, tails on us when we were down in uh, Tripoli. Um, it was it was just mad. And I was thinking to myself, what is this work? What is going on here? I haven't got a clue. Mm. But I gave him my opinion. I built up an, an idea of an operation. Um, I knew what he had to do to be able to get them out of there. I didn't know his capabilities. I didn't know what assets he had. I didn't know what the company's assets that he had that he was working with. He, all he asked was my advice, which I gave to him. And after that seven days, then I left and I went back home. My mind is set. I'm going to get healed. I'm going to go back to Afghanistan. I've got no worries there. I'm happy with what I'm doing anyway. Mm. It was about maybe about two weeks, three weeks later, something like this. He gives me a call, tells me that he's quit the case, which bothered me, like really bothered me. He quit. He'd been working on that case. Yeah, he quit. So he'd been working on that case maybe about six months already, okay? I didn't realize how much money had been put into this, but afterwards I found out that there was about 140 to 160 grand or something like that that was put into this case. So he decided to quit, and then the owner of his company had asked me if I would take on the case and actually go over there to, to, to complete it, and I'm sitting there thinking, oof, I don't know nothing about the child recovery industry. I don't know nothing about... Um, infiltrating or exfiltrating. I mean, I know stuff on the military, but on the sure. private sector side of it. Um, but I've always had that attitude, which is you can do anything you want as long as you don't get caught. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was constantly there in my head. You could probably do this if you find the right mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, I sat down with the missus and we had, we had a good conversation for a good two days. Like, um, I was going back to Afghanistan. We're solid. We're stable, financially stable. Everything's good. I'm enjoying my job. Do I do I do something here? And the question that kept coming up was, who else is going to go over there? Who else is actually going to go and get that mother and kid out of that place? Uh, they're mm -hmm. probably going to be stuck together. They've been abandoned now. By what what I thought of as at the time, this is a professional company because I've been working for professional companies. I would expect that this company that's dealing with children in this, these sort of situations to be a professional company, right? And uh, and and it, and it it really dug deep. And every single time that question came up, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? Um, and I, I would say that the majority of decisions in my life has always been. Um, developed through fuck it moments. It's that it's that moment where you're sitting there and you're just like you can't make a decision on anything, or when you write that email and you write that email to someone and you're like, does that sound a little bit too abrupt? Or and it's like fuck it, press that button. Fuck it, send it. Uh, and that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it is. So uh, so the decision was made like that, and it was like, now nah, I can't, I cannot let them sit there thinking that everyone's giving up on them. So I did. I went over. Um, I get over there, um, I, I, again, learning on the job. You've got to remember, this isn't my forte, this isn't what I do. Right. Everything that I, how I was there, I was learning on the job. All right, what do I need to do here? All right, I've got to figure this out. Figure out. Uh, everything that I've learned in the past, when the contracting world, the private military world, the, the military itself, you, you always 
learning on the job no matter what. You always mm. adapt into situations. I mean, we all we all know the motto improvise, adapt, and overcome. Right. Um, so that's literally what I was doing through that entire operation. So it was a case of like, all right, I need to do this and I need to do this and I need to do this. How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Um, I need these people, these people, these people. How do I get these people and all this? And it just started working out like that, one step at a time, one step at a time. It took me, it took me a good few months to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, power of elimination, I eliminated ideas. I eventually realized when I was in Lebanon, I, uh, the, the last major attempt I had was uh, – was a meeting. It was a random meeting, not expected in any way whatsoever. I was trying to to befriend the captain of a boat, um, asking him how I could get a package out of the country without okay. anybody knowing about it. Mm. Um, and little to my knowledge did I know that he took me into an office, which I thought was a boating office, where I'd have to bluff my way out of there. Turned out to be Lebanese mafia. They, uh, they strip-searched me. They took all my electronic devices, and then I ended up standing in front of the Lebanese mafia in my underwear saying, I need you to get a package out of this country. How much is it going to cost? <laughs> it was just weird how it went out. This guy is literally looking at me thinking, what is going on here, and who are you to be asking me these sort of questions? It was just so weird. It was surreal, I tell you. But the meeting was Hezbollah. This was a Hezbollah controlled yeah. area of Lebanon, was it? No? Yeah, no. So, so at this point, because uh, you've got certain areas which are Hezbollah controlled, ha- um, protected by the mullahs and Hezbollah themselves. Right. And you've got the Christian areas. So Le- Lebanon's very divided. So this was okay. closer towards Christian areas, but this was a Muslim mm-hmm. um, um, harbor area. Gotcha. Um, fishermen's areas. So it's probably mixed anyway. But this guy is sitting there, and the meeting went fine. The meeting was fantastic, apart from the fact that I'm standing there in my underwear feeling like a complete twat. But <laughs> he offered me a price. I said, I'll, I'll mull over it, and I'll think about it. The price was extortionate. There's no way that we could afford it. And, uh, and that's another thing. When I came onto the case, that's when I realized how little money they had left out of that 140, 160 grand um, that, was, that was actually uh, originally put into it. So I was quite shocked about that as well. So I'm on a minimal budget as well to try to fix this. I was looking for a small boat to be able to sneak out and then meet another boat. Those plans were falling through. Every plan that was coming up was falling through on the Lebanese side. So I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, I need to regroup here. This this is not going to work on this side. I have to figure something out on a different angle. And um, I I went down to the beach and I was with the grandfather of the kid at the time. And the grandfather is, uh, is one of these blokes who likes to talk and he's done everything. Um, not to say, say anything bad about him, he was very annoying because he just kept talking to me and talking sure. to me. And he was telling me how to do my job. And I was just like, that wouldn't work. That's like literally suicidal. You're asking me to get like, um, you know, like the kids, little blow up boats that you get at the beach mm-hmm. and then you float the kids around get one of them that'll be fine oh, we can hook up some batteries and and i was just like you're gonna die you right. go down this road you're going to die but uh, the more that he spoke to me and as annoying as it was on all of the ideas because it was constant pressure on me 24 hours a day and i'm still trying to figure stuff out and it was it was the most stressful thing that i've ever done um the more he spoke to me the more i was like all done I've got a better way to do that. And that's when I decided I need to get back to Cyprus. Cyprus, I know. I know everything there is to know about Cyprus. I know where to find the right people to do the right job all the time. I've lived there for a long time at this point. Mm. 
Um, so I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I bugged over to Cyprus, and that's when I started hanging around the marina. Um, long story short on this, this is where um, I ended up connecting with the Cypriot Mafia. The Cypriot Mafia helped me to get a boat. We then rigged up that boat, which took another week, um, basically building steel frames on it, um, fish finders, so we could have our cover story on the other side as a fishing vessel. The story was weak as fuck, the cover story to go over there on this boat. It was horrendous, but it worked. Um so we, we rigged that all the boat and everything like that. That cost us a fair bit of money anyway, uh, which was extra money that the client had to pay. But it, this, this was a solid plan. I brought in a bootneck, um, a Royal Marine Commando, as a coxswain. And uh, and, and this bloke, he, he was like one of the most amazing blokes that I've ever met because he was nuts. Um, <laughs> and that, when I say nuts, I'm talking Mad Murdoch scale um, from the A-team when mm. he's like, Oh my God, he, he was, but he was, he was solid at the same time. And he, he was like, he was devoted, dedicated, 100% straight down the line. That's okay. But he's just, just crazy at the same time. And I thought perfect bloke <laughs> to take this boat, which I hope makes it over 120 nautical miles of sea to get to another country with the cover story that he did it as a drunken bet that he couldn't make it. <laughs> what the? That was the, oh, that was the whole cover story. I swear to God, it that was, was the whole cover story. That was it. That's all it was. He was drunk in a bar. Someone bet that he couldn't make it to Lebanon, and he had to go to Lebanon, and that's why he did it. Um, by the time the boat got there, we put a steel frame onto a fiberglass hull for starters. Mm. Um, that wasn't good because, obviously, it starts to shake loose, and the fiberglass starts to break away and wear away. So we had problems with that, and we had to get repairs on that On the, uh, as soon as we got down on that side. The repairs were obviously bastardized as best as possible, but it wasn't solid. Um, mm. His job was to control the water side, and basically he had to do all of the wreckies on the water, so he was looking for Coast Guard vessels that could possibly hinder our extraction. Um, he was looking for any military vessels. He was looking for anything that could possibly get in our way whatsoever, and... The most critical part was that when I find a place on the coast I can get to from my pickup point, I need him to check if he can pick me up from that location. And that was the only communication that we had between each other until the very day of the operation. It all worked out. There was lots of things that went wrong, but there was lots of things that went right. Um, I did the land side of the operation, which led me down so many different roads. Um, but overall, we ended up in a situation where I picked up the mother um, we ended up in a safe house. I'm not going to go into the details of why, mm. <laughs> because you can get the book for this. Yes. Because uh, I'm giving a lot away right now. We end up in a safe house. <laughs> we end up in a safe house, which was technically the longest night of my life. Um, and then from there, we moved on to the boat. Um, and then we got on that boat. And one of the one of the hardest parts that I thought I would come across was we get that boat and then we go across. We've just proven it comes across the water, but it's broken. What are we going to do to get back, considering there's more people on the boat? And again, it was the Cypriot Mafia that came to the rescue, which is strange because people are shocked when I tell you that these organized crime elements, these um, underground networks work alongside me. They work, mm. work better for me than what the actual authorities do because they actually care about the kids. 
Now, there's a right. lot of organizations that don't, and we know who those organizations are, and they're the ones that we go after. But when it comes to like your cigarette smugglers or your different types of organized crime and all that, they're, they're big on kids. They really are. Cyprus is very family orientated as well, so that worked massively in our favor. And they brought a boat out into the middle of the Med. So they stayed in the middle of the Mediterranean on the Cypriot side of international waters. We got to that point, and then they picked us up from there, took us back to Cyprus, and then we got the kid and the mother home. That was my first introduction to something that I've never done in my entire life before. And I was like, oof, this is all right, this. This is crazy. So it was the mad. book's called Angel in the Shadows. That's, That's right, yeah, yeah. And if people want to get that book, is that uh, just through your website? Yeah, so um, we've got it going through the publisher's website. We've got it on Amazon.co.uk, and currently we're looking at getting it on Amazon in America, so that'll be Amazon.com. It's not there yet. Um, the other night we sold, two nights ago now, we sold out on hardback copies, and currently this paperback copy, copy is uh, it's available for pre-orders. So uh, I'm still waiting on the date for that to actually come out, but we can get it on pre-orders now. Um, we can put the links up as well. Uh, yeah, that won't be a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's loads, loads of ways to buy it. So how much of this job is client management and strategy, planning the, the operation, planning the recovery, as opposed to the, the actual recovery effort? I would say that the recovery side of things is probably one of the easiest parts of the entire operation. Managing clients, it's it, it's, a, it's a massive thing. Um, mm. We have to do everything that we can to continuously keep on top of them because we have to teach them and train them on certain things. We have to be able to um, control them mentally so they can actually stay calm in the right situations. We have to be able to teach them. To, to uh, about operational security for starters because they always want to pass news back home, things like this. It, it, mm. Client management is key to success because the minute that someone starts letting things slip and there's information going across electronic communications on, on what we are doing and how we're going to go about it, then the, the mission is over. It's, it, it, it's not viable anymore. Um, the planning of the operation is constant all the time um, every single minute of every single day you're thinking of something you're testing it um, we plan things into the details because obviously don't forget the majority of stuff we do is very covert and the only time then if anyone knows that we've been anywhere near those sort of areas is at the time of the operation so you've got to have your cover stories in place you've got to build your cover stories to make sure that you depend on what situation you're about to get yourself into you have to step up and take the risks to get the information you need. Um, as an example, some of the operations that I've done, um, I've got myself arrested or detained on purpose on a border of two countries, purposely to find out what assets that they had. Now, to do that without anything coming back on me, I had to set up a cover story for two weeks, and then that cover story had to be solid and obviously nothing true in any way whatsoever about why I'm actually there. And then right. I'd actually go in, commit to this, get myself detained on the border. They would then hold me. I had to look into all of the laws, the regulations. What can they do? Um, how can this go? What should I expect? Things like this. I got detained. They questioned me for an hour. They checked out my cover story. I questioned them for four hours and got all information about their entire operation on the border for the whole of the country because they gave me free reign to go to the smoking area. So I stand at the smoking area showing the soldiers because soldiers are soldiers. 
and they like mm. to talk about war stories. Mm. And they, I would show them pictures of war, talk to them about Iraq, things like this. They would try to buy my phone, stuff like that. And then bit by bit, you build their trust in a very short period of time and get all the information that you need. So it's things like that that you've done, that I've done. And then, uh, as an example, there's, there's the dangerous risks, the, the, the really dangerous ones. Um, the last operation I was working on, for example, for seven days, nobody knew where I was. That was my own choice because I didn't want to give out anything electronically and announce where I was going because I was going into an area that is monitored massively for comms. Um, mm. And at the same time as that, I needed to work with underground networks and figure out a way to get out of a certain country across a border illegally. Um, or should I say, or should I say alternatively? Um, <laughs> I like that. So I was, uh, I was on the, I was on this border. I, I drove for two days, um, solid straight, uh, one and a half thousand miles. When I got into this location, um, I got picked up from a certain area, taken out of my car, put into another car, driven for an hour. Uh, no idea where I was going. Then I got taken out of that car. All of my electronics, all of my equipment, everything that I had on me was put out, taken out off me, put into another car. I was then driven for another hour. And I guess about three o'clock in the morning, we ended up pulling up into this clearing in the middle of no man's land between two countries. And this is a clearing purposely designed for smuggling. Mm. And we're in this clearing in, on this border in no man's land. And I've got, I'm surrounded by people, just silhouettes all around me. And I've got one guy standing in front of me and he's just there gauging how much he can trust me for what the operation is that I wanted to do and if we had the money and all. And it was just chaotic, I tell you. It was that day there, that's when I was like, uh, yeah, you boys might want to start tracking me now. I might be getting into something here. Yeah, <laughs> no so, uh, so once I did that, I get back and then uh, and then things started to work swimmingly. So that, that, that there in itself is a situation where I could disappear. If they didn't trust mm. me on that day, that's it, I'm gone. Um, I always describe it as the fact that whenever I was working away contracting or whenever I was in the military, the missus was always waiting for that phone call to tell her bad news. Now she doesn't wait for that phone call. She waits for the day that she doesn't hear anything. It's literally mm. once she knows we've got ways of communicating with each other and everything like that, but when she doesn't hear anything for a period of time, that's when she knows it's done and, uh, and there's no finding me after that. That's how, that's mm. how dangerous it is and they're the risks that we take. To, to go to those extra extra elements of being able to make sure we do it, which you won't find in many of the companies that are out there, unfortunately. Well, what does the missus think of all of this? She thinks I'm nuts. Yeah. <laughs> she supports me 100%. She supports me all of the way. She's been through been through this since day one with me. And obviously, she's been through my contracting days out in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sure. Um, she knows she knows what I'm capable of. She knows how I am and how passionate I am about this. Um, because the, the thing that will always will always remind me of what I'm doing is uh, is that question, who else is going to do it? Every case that I take on, I consider it as my own children. What would I do if it was my own children? And because of my experiences and because of the life path that I've taken, um, I go to those extreme elements every single time. If you take a family that's just gone through a normal life, they have no idea what they're capable of to be able to get these children back and Right. The phone call to the police will always lead into disappointment if they've gone and they've got no lead. Once they lose that last lead, then that's it. It's done. And the majority of the time that leads to a chain of phone calls from the police from one district to another district to another district. And if it's international, it's to another country and to through their districts. And it's a chain of phone calls that's being waiting for. 
but no one is physically looking. And that's what's always bothered me. Because when, if you start physically looking, I've always said, if you look for something, you're always going to find it, no matter what. Mm. If you look into a relationship, you're looking for a problem, you're going to find a problem. If you're looking yep. into um, your finances and you think that they're solid and you look into it, you're going to find a problem. There's always, you will always find the source of that problem where if you look, mm. and that, that's what I've always been solid for. So, I mean, my boy, he understands what I do. Um, I mean, he's a teenage boy. So uh, mm. you can imagine what he thinks. My daughter, she hasn't got a clue what I do. She literally thinks I work in an airport because when she sees me go, I go to an airport. And when she picks me up, she picks me up from an airport. Right. <laughs> but the missus is the one that keeps me straight. She's uh, She definitely keeps my head straight as well. Well, uh, the, the one you're talking about, six months in, $140,000 or so that the uh, the client was in for it. And, and Buddy says, that's it. I'm out. I quit. And you come on board. Like that's yeah. that's a lot of money that a lot of people just don't have kicking around. And you've yeah. taken a very unique approach to uh, child recovery. And you're, from what I understand, you're looking at crowdsourcing international yeah. child recovery. Yeah. That's I, I haven't heard of that being done before. Is this the first time? Have you heard of this? It hasn't been done before. Um, it is very difficult to get them, without a doubt. And what I can tell you is that it works when we get the donations in. All right, mm. so working for that company and seeing how much money come from that company actually took, the amount of money that actually went onto that operation was nowhere near was the amount of money that they paid. The majority of that money went into the owner of that company's pocket. So these companies, there's a lot of companies that are out there, and there's even more popping up now. And what I found is that I started working for that company. I took on a case. Um, it was a parental abduction. Um, the girl reached an age where she could decide where she wanted to live, which meant that the Hague documents, all of the court documents for custody, all of that became non-invoid because now the girl has a decision under herself and she has the legal rights to make her own decision. So I went back to the owner of the company and I told the owner of the company that the case couldn't be completed for these reasons and this is what's happened. And then I witnessed him have a meeting with that client and he took another 30000 off that client and then didn't tell that client for a couple of months that they couldn't do the case. Wow. I saw that happen and I was like, what is going on here? And then... Obviously, after having discussions and all that sort of stuff, he said he's going to work on it. I knew that he wasn't going to work on it. I ended up bailing from that company. Mm. So I started freelancing. And when I started freelancing, what I realized, because I started speaking to a lot of companies that are in the industry, and, uh, and all of these companies, I'd figured out who they were from working for that original company because they all connected in some sort of way. And it's a weird, um, and I'm going to use the reference of Tiger King scenario because I've been watching Tiger King again, um, (laughs) in the aspect of how fucked up everything is. Um, the company I was working for, all of these companies, they hate each other. There's another company that's out there that was massively against every single person and his marketing scheme is to basically slander everybody else off. Um, Another company when I was in Lebanon, which I found out whilst I was in Lebanon, was trying to go against everything that I was doing and trying to fuck up the operation because he didn't get the case. So he's not in it for the kids. Really? And he didn't get the money out of it. And because he didn't get the money he wanted to destroy the operation, to then turn around and say that this company that I was actually working for at the time was a bad company. And that's the sort of mentality that you're dealing with. 
these people they charge anywhere between fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or pounds or euros, depending on where you're from. They mm. sell you the world. They sell themselves as SF companies, special forces units, and mm. all that. None of them, not one of them, has ever been in special forces. Not one of them has ever done very long in the military. Not not one of them has ever been in combat operations overseas. Not one of them has. And I know this from their history because I've got to know them over the years. Right. Um, they sell you the world. We can do this. We can do that. You're a vulnerable parent. You've just lost your children. You're willing to do anything it takes to get your children back. Right. I need this money. I can't work without this money. You need to pay this much up front or whatever. And then... Basically, you will go and then remortgage your house or sell your house. You'll sell all the assets that you've got. You'll take out massive loans, whether that be from family, whether that be from banks. You will do everything you can to raise that cash, thinking that you're going to get your kid back. Hand that mm. cash over. You won't even get a photograph. You won't even get a report. You won't get any. You literally get phone calls or emails saying, I can't tell you anything about it right now because we're working on the operation, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, they'll be like, well, we've utilized all of the money now. Either pay us more money or do money the operation's over. Now, you see the pattern of what happened there to what happened in Lebanon when the guy quit? Yeah, yeah. So all of, all of that combined together made me realize how screwed up this industry is. It's, it's not professional. They don't have professional units. They don't have professional soldiers. Um, and they're ripping people off left, right, and center. And it bothered me so fucking much. Mm. It's about 2015 I came up with a concept, and the concept being... I can't stand this anymore, seeing this happening. They're taking cases on. I'm not getting cases. And the reason I wanted to take these cases on was to make sure that they get a professional service, cheap as fuck, because I know for a fact if you spend, if you tell me that it's going to cost 50 grand, I've done cases before where I've lived on the streets for two weeks. I've done cases where I've lived in a car and um, upset a few of the locals by washing myself in one of their mountain fountains whilst they're drinking chai. So you can imagine what I was doing there. Uh, sure, yeah. And, and it's cost me a couple of grand. Um, I say that the average case that we co- we charge for now, or not charge for, the average cost of a case that we take on now is about 30000 because now we up our assets. Now we push out professional units. We push out backup systems and all this sort of stuff. To a certain extent, we're not at the stage where we can go as far as I want to, but mm. we are at a stage where we can monitor each other at least. But um, I digress. They, uh, they started that. I decided that I wanted to set it up and do everything I can to raise money for these families um, and provide the cheapest possible service. If I can raise 10 grand and they pay five grand, then obviously we're in a better situation than anybody else. Plus, I'm going to be able to do what I have to do with a very cheap service as well. But they get the most professional service out there. And uh, the concept was there for a long time. Mm. In 2017, April the 27th, 2017, a young girl was kidnapped from Cyprus. I was in Afghanistan at the time because what happened before um, before last year, I would be in Afghanistan or Iraq and then I'd get a case and then I'd come home and do that case whilst I'm on leave and then I'd go back to Afghanistan or Iraq. And in the aspect of doing that, what I found is that cases would come in but then they'd have to wait for a long time before I can get home. Um, I also found that I wasn't spending any time with my family either, which is why last year that was it. I called it all off and I, I went full-time into child recovery to make this work. Great. So uh, April the 27th, child goes missing from Cyprus. I'm in Afghanistan. I read it on a newspaper. This is a case that I've read about before because this was the second attempt of kidnapping this girl. One of these companies kidnapped the girl. The Prime Company. 
the prime company that's out there that's ripping families off saying that they recover children kidnapped this child. Oh, the Cypress authorities were looking. Yeah, it's fucking mad, mate, I tell you. The Cypress authorities, they were looking over on the northern side of Cyprus. I read that article within minutes of reading that article, or instantly as reading that article. As I'm reading it, I knew who did it and where they'd gone. Because I know their mm-hmm. tactics, I know how they operate. So I started to get in touch with the family and reaching out through the Facebook groups and everything. Obviously, some nutter who's working in Afghanistan is reaching out and just gobbling off saying, they're not there, you have to do something and look here because this mm. is what's happening. It took me a while to get my message through. Um, but once I got out of Afghanistan, April 27th, that was, and then at the end of June, I got out of Afghanistan. And I get back to Cyprus and I met the family. And when the family met me, they knew that I was fucking solid. Mm-hmm. Everything that I told them was confirmed because we got the financial records through and everything like that to show that payment had been made to that company. And within an hour of talking to that family, they sent me information. I got straight on a plane within an hour and then I flew over to Turkey. When I was in Turkey, obviously I was chasing this company down there. This is something else that's never been done before. This is a case of chasing a company, a professional company. Um, but having professionals chase them changed the game a lot because I got to the point, the first town that I went to, I tore that town to pieces within 24 hours. No one had heard anything about this kid um, and where this kid had gone to prior to me going into this village. I tore that town apart for CCTV footage. I got photographs from the locals. I got pictures of the house that they was using, the car that they was using. I got in the CCTV footage. And I'm actually making a video about this at the moment with my Patreon account. But you see that the girls had a haircut. Um, the pictures you could see with her body language, with her back turned. And it was a it was a father. Her father kidnapped her. But the way that it was done, the company did this, was that two masked men grabbed the child, pushed the the, uh, the mother to the ground outside the nursery, threw her into a car. The car then drove for under 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes stopped at the border, handed the child over to a taxi driver. The taxi driver then threw her across the border. And then when she got across the border, she met a bloke who is her father that she didn't know because she hasn't seen him since he was a week old. Mm. So it's a complete stranger and all of that trauma to actually be stuck with a complete stranger. So uh, a lot of people talk about this saying, yeah, but the mother kidnapped her first and all that. That's not the case. You don't know the details of the actual story. The mother had never, ever kidnapped that child. There was no court records. There's no no history of anything like that. This was a solid case of kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Um, so the child goes through all that. So the first time I go into, we get all the CCTV footage, the photographs and everything like this, and it, it was pretty nuts. Um, I had a mother and the whole village like rioting to get me out of that village by the time I'd finished. And I was standing there by myself, no backup, nothing, no money. <laughs> all I had was a car. And uh, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm not going to go until you give me everything that I need. And wow. they gave me everything that I needed. And it, it was amazing. I got some good friends in that village now. Like they, they actually befriended me. After that, I used to go up there quite on a regular basis and actually get food and stuff like this in that area. Long story short on this, but the chase took me from one town to another town. And I get to one town, and I'm on this massive marina, and I saw the owner of that company who kidnapped the kid doing really, really shit surveillance rules, like as if he was like, he was weird, mm. I tell you. <laughs> I had, go on, mate, go on. <laughs> how much of this is a poker game? When do you get into it? Like how much of this is, like obviously it's a poker game where you're actually going to have to throw down if you have to, but the preferred yeah. outcome would be to not do. Yeah, 
Um, I've never thrown down. Uh, I'll never give up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about poker. It's all about playing the shots. So, for example, when I was over in Turkey, one thing I found, because I was working for myself, by myself, and I had no money and no budget to do anything, so I was alone and I had to keep chasing leads, um, I recruited the Turkish police by accident. How do you, how do you recruit accident. them by accident? Yeah. They made an assumption, and one thing I believe is that assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups anyway. Mm-hmm. So I go, with, I, go, I go over into this town, and I'm doing surveillance on certain things. There's one yacht in particular that i got a feeling about. It's a sailboat, it is. Uh, i got a particular feeling about it, the flag on it, the where it is, the way that it's parked. Um, I've had information about this town. It's got to be that boat. As I'm checking that boat out, I get called. Uh, the police get called on me for looking suspicious. Um, I had a, a red notice and a yellow notice from Interpol. So the red notice is a wanted notice, an international um, warrant of arrest, because this mm-hmm. person is wanted for these charges. And the yellow notice is for the child to say that the child is missing and the child has gone missing for, under these circumstances. Um, but I had them on me, on my phone. So when the police took me in to, to ask me, I was doing everything through Google Translate, which is fantastic. And I kept saying Interpol, 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 and showing them these Interpol warrants. Um, I need to find this guy. This guy is in this town, 100%. This has happened. And this is about the father and the child. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on. I was in there about an hour. They decided that they wanted to drive me around. This is definitely a long story short because I ended up in a different town afterwards. They got covert surveillance teams on houses for me and everything because it was just it was just crazy how much they literally wanted to work with me. <laughs> wow. Um, but whilst I was in this uh, in this marina, uh, the guy walks past me. I'm standing outside on a cigarette waiting for the Jandamat to come outside. Jandamat is the like marine police. They're going to take me around in their car to introduce me to people that I've got connections mm. to connections to connections. And this is the underground networks that I'm talking about. You want to find an underground network, no matter where you go, a bit of advice for you. Always go to a marina. You'll always find them. 100% guaranteed. I believe it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it works. Yes. Um, I'm standing outside, I'm having a cigarette, and I see this guy walk past me, and I'm looking at this guy. I don't know who the fuck it is, but I'm like, why do I recognize that bloke? And he looks at me, and there's that little glimpse of eye contact. And I'm there thinking, nah, alarm bells are going off. Something's not right here. I know that bloke. Why do I know that bloke? Didn't have a clue who it was at the time. Never spoken to him before. Never even looked into him or anything like this. Okay. Walks past me. And then it was like one of those moments. There's a shop on the left side. And it was one of those. It's something that I would never do. But it's one of those obvious moments where it's like, oh, look at this. This is very interesting. <laughs> and then he walks over to this shop. So what he realizes, seriously, when he realizes that at the shop he can't really get because he's like now straight down the line with me from where I'm standing. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't really have a good angle to see me or to see what I'm up to, to see what's going on or anything like that. <laughs> um, so across the way, there's tables right on the, on, on the waterfront. There's tables and chairs for the restaurants and stuff like this. Mm. And there's a there's a menu on a board, you know, like when you enter the outside areas of a restaurant, they get the menu, the board menu, mm-hmm. and all that, so you can look at before you go inside. And it was exactly the same thing again. Oh, what is that? It's the over exaggeration <laughs> that brought alarms to me. Um, and he yes. walks over to it, and you can see he's just standing there, and he's like looking over like this and looking over like that. And I thought, fucking hell, I know for a fact that something is wrong here. And that is the worst drills that I've ever seen in my entire life. No kidding. That's what I think it was. That, that, and that that's was the exaggerated watch lock, right? 
It is, yeah. So that yeah. was that was the confirmation I, I needed straight away to know that this guy was actually in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> that case in itself ended up with a situation where they managed to get on their boat. They managed to get out, even though I was going after the Coast Guard and I was getting the marina managers involved and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. They managed to get away um, and they managed to get back to Norway. And when they got back to Norway, because of everything that we put in place, first of all, me chasing them, stopped them from being able to to settle and actually bide their time. They had to rush into everything. Um, right. So they didn't have a solid plan in itself. Secondly, we got their bank accounts frozen. Um, we got all the legal side in Norway and in Cyprus on our side. So the minute, and we had international arrest warrants out for him. He couldn't leave any country legally with that child, no matter what. So he would have been stuck in, in Turkey if he didn't sneak out of Turkey on a boat. Yeah. Um, and, and we put so much pressure onto him that he had to hand that child back as soon as he got into Norway the minute that he touched ground um, so it was a long period of time it was a long period of time waiting for them to actually get from Turkey over to Norway but the minute that they got into Norway it was game over straight away and that was all because of the pressure that we put on and that was my first case taking my company live and that's my introduction to all of these other companies when they, when I was trying to unify and actually get them to work together then they saw that I was going out by myself and chasing them that's when they started to realize that they're going to have problems. So knowing what you know now, Oh, sorry. Mm. Go on. Yeah. So that's a long way around to tell you about what I'm doing now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, knowing what you know now, would you turn around and do things differently? If you could tell the younger you, are there things that you'd look at and say, and look at, this is absolutely wrong. The right way we should approach it is ABC. Yeah. What would you do different? Uh, there's loads of things I'd do different. Um, for example, um, on that Turkey case in itself, first of all, I would have had more operators with me and I would have pushed for money on that case. Um, I was trying to prove that I could do it for free. I was foolish to do that. Um, there were leads that I had to follow, which took me away from leads that I were following, which was solid, taking me to leads that were being pushed our way purposely to get me away from the distractions. If I had more manpower, I could have pushed that out there. But the whole process of everything that I've gone through in the learning curve from the very first case all the way through to now, don't forget that first case is nearly a decade ago now. Mm. Um, There's been so much learning curve. We've developed formulas, we've developed systems, we've developed uh, support networks, we've developed aftercare networks. Um, the, the situation that we're in is solid right now and all of our operations are solid in the way that we're actually operating because our network is vast um, and it's worldwide. Um, mm. With gathering the support from the public, uh, with raising funds from the public now, which we'll talk about now, mm. um, the, this, this, this helps us massively because one of the biggest hindrances that we've got is finances, lack of finances. Um I want to provide a free service to every family out there. There isn't a family in this world that should go without having somebody physically looking for their child when their child goes missing. Mm-hmm. Right now, the majority of children that are out there that have gone missing, and you've got to understand these sort of numbers, right? Eight million children every single year go missing worldwide. Eight million. In America itself, it's 800 to 850,000 children that are reported missing every single year, and at least a third of them disappear for good. In the UK alone, it's 137 to 240,000 children, and at least 10% of those children never found. Australia, 20,000. Germany, 100,000. This is four countries that I'm giving you statistics for, and worldwide it goes up to 8 million. No one's looking for those kids. Hmm. How scary is that? 
Well, you've likened it before. I remember you saying, uh, it's like a homeless person in the streets and people yeah. walk by this person in the street and think nothing of it because they've never been in that situation. What, yeah. what would you tell a parent or somebody that would help them? Well, I guess twofold would help prepare them should they find themselves in a situation and maybe kind of open their eyes to um, uh, the possibility that they could possibly find themselves in this situation. Yeah, I, I think the key to anything, if you find yourself in a situation, then it's already too late, unfortunately. Right. Um, and that's not too late to do anything about it because that's what we're here for. Um, getting towards that situation, there's always elements of planning. Majority of kidnappings or abductions in the world are not randomly just picked off the streets. Oh, there's one, right. take that, let's go. Um, even when it comes to sex trafficking or um, slavery, uh, trafficking of, of, of humans for slavery, which is a massive industry in the world now, um, or even if it comes to organ trafficking, it's not a case of randoms. There's always an element of planning. It might not be sophisticated planning, but there will be an element of planning. Um, an example would be the Cleo Smith case, which has recently happened out in Australia. Um, she was taken from a campsite, then taken back within a two-mile radius of her own house, which means that that was planned prior to her going to that campsite purposely to take right. it back which will give them distraction there's planning there's elements of planning so, so the biggest key that anyone can do is awareness be aware of your surroundings be aware of what is happening around you be aware of faces that you're starting to see on a regular basis be aware of um, setting patterns if you go to school go different ways every single day you don't have to go at the same time you don't have to go um, the same way um, things like mm -hmm. this um, just be aware if you're walking with your kid don't stand on the on the, on the the don't let the child stand on the, the side for the road always stand on the roadside so therefore there's someone between the road and there's someone between the kids educate the kids about mm -hmm. school if they're at school never ever go to a teacher outside of the school to their car to actually help them with something you will always mm -hmm. go inside the school the teacher should never ask your children to do that and I use that as an example because two kids were kidnapped in Cyprus and luckily the police found them very quickly but it was at the position where they'd already been intoxicated with something and they was unconscious and the guy was very, living very close to the school. Found off CCTV, thank God. But it's things like that that kids need to be educated on. It's things like that that families need to be educated on. Um, and that leads to the point of not happening in the first place. When we work in close protection and risk management, we don't work in close protection because we're the guys that throw our bodies in front of the targets but, or in front of our client's body to protect them. If you get to that point, you've failed. That's as mm. simple as it is. It's all about not getting into that situation. Read the signs that are around you. If you read those signs around you and you can figure out something is about to go down or you have a feeling that something is going to go down because of things that you've seen and heard and the streets gone quiet, for example, just as an indicator, turn around, go back. That's as simple as it is. Mm. Um, if you end up in that sort of situation, do the process, go through the full process, but be open to other things. The service that we provide, not enough people know about it at the moment in the world. There's a lot of people that are clicking onto it, and it's fantastic, and I reckon that within the next year there's going to be a hell of a lot more people that know about it. Mm -hmm. But be open to other services. Call the police, 100% call the police. You don't have to wait to call us. If anyone calls us and we've got the funds or you've got the funds, then we will respond and we will do everything as quick as possible. One of the fastest cases that we've ever completed took us two hours. There was a girl that was groomed online and she was groomed to run away to be with her groomer for sexual gratification from the groomer. Her father called us away. Her mother called the police at the same time. 
We responded by getting guys on the ground straight away. They started to move into a location. We entered the location of the area of where they were because we had to come from 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 a while away. Mm. Um, we built up an entire online profile. We got an address of where she was going to. We built up an online profile of the target. We got all of his criminal record history. We got all of his social media accounts. From his social media accounts, we saw what type of girls he was targeting, how he was targeting them, where he was targeting them. Um, we built all of that up and we got people at the door within a two hour period before the police had knocked the door to ask questions to the mother. Wow. The reason we could do that is because we had a pot of money there. So I'm trying to provide a free service and the way that I provide a free service or the concept of me, how I want to try to provide a free service is it's, it's probably the most simplistic concept that they could possibly be. 30,000 pound for an average international case. I don't know what that translates to in Canadian dollars, so you have to go to xe.com to check it out. <laughs> but um, £30,000, £30, 15,000 people donating £2, 7,500 people donating £4 gives us one international case. Population of the planet is 7.8 billion. Price of a cup of coffee averages about £4.50. Do the maths. It's, right. That's all it's going to take. One cup of coffee, not even that, half a cup of coffee every single month all of you donate to that. We can get international cases. A million people donate two pounds. I can put permanent teams in Canada, Australia, America, South Africa, and mainland Europe. And we can dominate and take the fight towards the enemy, take the fight towards the kidnappers, take the fight towards sex traffickers, because you're creating a veteran military force or ex-military force, which is using the skills that we've been taught over a long career within the military and private military and private security industry to actually go out and do something that's right to actually look after our kids because nobody else is. That's, that's literally the entire concept of what we're doing. Donations that we take on, it comes in many forms. We've got merchandise out there, so proceeds from the merchandise that goes into uh, raising funds for the general public, uh, from the general public. Um, we've got a book for sale. Uh, mm-hmm. which is now obviously open for pre-sales on the paperback. We've got Patreon, which is a monthly subscription, which gives that early access and exclusive access to images, stories, and access to my mind, more importantly, because then you get to know a little bit what's going on inside there, what's the one operations. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And obviously there's the, there's, there's the normal stuff of PayPal, um, uh, crowdfunding through Just Giving and um, Cash App we have. Okay, but that's that's the concept of what we're trying to create. We have to be able to get to the point where we create that. That that will be make us successful. If we create that pot, when we've got that pot, I get tagged at least ten to twenty times every single day in a missing case. There's a day that goes by where I don't have somebody on the phone crying to me because their kids gone missing. There's a single day that goes by, even on the weekends, really? I have to answer calls like this. Really? If we had that pot and someone called us at the right time, right time then uh, we could respond immediately. So I, I guess that would open up a little bit of an ethical quandary as well when you talk about the uh, recovery of, of children, when most of the children are uh, from statistically, it, it'll be a parental abduction. Is that, uh, yeah. have you found that? Yeah. Statistically, a lot of our cases that we're taking in right now are parental abductions. The way that parental abductions work, it's very complicated, it's very difficult. Um, again, like I say, it's not the only thing that we take on. We do take on a lot of other things, and we're leading up to a lot mm. more bigger things with our affiliations. But parental abductions can become very complicated. 
The first thing that we have to analyze straight away is what's going on, why did it happen, and why are you calling us to do something? Because you as a parent are either the victim or you're the cause. And that sounds really bad to say, but it's Mm. true. I've had parents get in touch with me and clear as day on the first initial phone call, within seconds of them talking to me, I know for a fact that they are a cause. They are trying to manipulate me uh, with their narcissistic ways. They're trying to do anything that they can to or emotionally blackmail me in every single way possible. And you Mm. can pick up on that with intuition. You can pick up on that and experience and talking to people and things like this. Um, then you get the real side of it and you get the ones that you literally have to do the investigations on. So we take on a case and we look at it and we're like, all right, this sounds solid. Let's check it out. We will check out the case, check out all court documents. In court documents, a lot of details come out of what's happened, Mm -hmm. why it's happened. Um, Criminal records, background checks um, to check that there's no cause for alarm when it comes to the fact if there's any charges towards the partner who's ran away um, with the child, whether it be from domestic abuse or, 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 or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, we then analyze both sides of the family, extended family, all social media for friends and family to see if we can find anything there. We scour the internet to find out anything that we can possibly find. And that's before we even take on a case. It is. That's fantastic. Cause I, I know I would think anybody who's putting money into the pot would want to have a, a, a bit of an yeah. idea of, of how you, deal with that quandary but that's yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. most pragmatic way you can yeah it has to it has to be checked out we do psychological analysis on uh, on the client as well and we figure everything out with that and it, it's all this is why a lot of people get in touch with me and they say oh can i have a job um you can see what sort of levels that you have to get to to be able to do a job like this it's it's not mm-hmm. something that you can go in the military and then just walk out in the military and say i'm going to do this because you don't have those skills those skills you don't have that experience you don't have those qualifications to be able to take you to those sort of levels because there are so many elements that you have to play into when it comes to the case itself on a parental abduction for example um there's always a lot of confusion. First of all, parental abductions are not safe abductions. It's it's one of the mm. biggest misconceptions on this entire planet where people believe that parental abductions are safe abductions. Even the police can categorize parental abductions as being safe abductions. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. Mm. No matter what, at the, the lowest level of a parental abduction, a child is going to go through mental abuse or parental alienation that's at the lowest mm. level i've seen cases that have been taken taken to the extremes where a parent has kidnapped their own child or even a boyfriend has kidnapped the child of their partner and this is one that happened in romania very recently it's a very recent case that only came out about two weeks ago physically killed the children and then killed themselves just to leave a psychological impact on the parent that's left behind right that's how bad that parent's abductions go. I haven't worked on a parent's abduction case where there hasn't been some sort of psychological elements involved in it, mental illness involved into it. I've had parents that have been threatened to kill their kids if anybody goes near the house. Um, uh, physical, actual physical violence on the kids. Recently, I've had a grandmother that's been poisoning her own child, which is the mother of the actual kid and her grandchild, right. um, just for the psychological elements of control over them. it's a massive misconception to say that they say when it comes to a parental abduction and the recovery of a a child that's been a victim of a parental abduction um, a lot of people think that we're kidnapping the child back Um, it's always described like that because there's always another misconception of how it works the cases that we take on 
the parent that we're taking it on with the client has the legal rights to take that child back. And the reason he has the legal rights is, or she has the legal rights is because they've gone through the courts and they've taken on full custody. They've got the Interpol warrants out, which is the warrant for arrest, and they've got the missing missing um, uh, yellow notice, which has been issued, which gives us international um, help from Interpol. We can literally assist Interpol or get Interpol to assist us with local authorities to be able to help us with that. Sometimes we use them, sometimes we don't. It depends on what, what sort of country we're in, what the situation is. Outside of that, they've then got the International Hague Convention, which orders an actual um, a document, uh, a court order, to say that the child has to be returned back to the place of habitual residence. Now, with mm. all of that combined, you then have to get execution orders with inside that country to execute the order to return that child back to that country. And because of the Hague Convention, and as long as that country is part of the Hague, then they should or they have to in theory, mm. issue that execution. So when you go through with that execution, this is where we come into it. We actually escort and we provide close protection. This is why it's important for us to have a close protection and a medical background as well. We go in, provide close protection. We also then, they have a, a sense of authoritative um, power towards the authorities that are around them because they see that we're there and as strange as it sounds, being British also helps us massively when we're going into a country such as the third world country. They see it and they actually enforce our orders as their own orders. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a psychological element. It is. There's a lot of nations out there that are subservient and things like that. And then all of a sudden, that mm. sort of psychological element plays into power as well. Um, so the parent will always be the one that picks up their child. We will never touch that child. We will never, ever do anything to that child. We will only protect them as a client, as a close protection client. And we'll give them, provide them protection to make sure that they're safe to get them out of that country and return them back to their home country. And that's the difference in a parental abduction. We haven't gone after sex traffickers yet. This is something we're building up to, and it's like I've said many times, the more cases that we take on, it's a matter of time before we walk through a door and we've got more kids there. And then that leads us into a completely different element, which is the element that we're trying to get to, which is why we're creating the affiliations with these large groups like our and um, Veterans, for Just, uh, Veterans for Child Rescue out, out in America as well, things like that. Jay, that's fantastic. You know, yeah. I'm looking at the time here. Is there anything else that we should be talking about before we uh, kind of wrap things up here? Um, <laughs> I mean, I could go on all night. <laughs> I got loads of I, I'm loving the stories, and really, we could <laughs> we could talk for a while. I'm just I'm trying to be yeah. conscious of your time because I know you've got a family, and how we've scheduled this one is in between things here a little bit. Yeah, I've got a lot of conferences coming up tonight as well. I think I think the prime things are out there. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of questions raised, um, and those questions we can always come back to on a different podcast, or we can go in the live on, uh, or anyone can join my TikTok lives or anything like that and join and ask any questions that you want to. But um, I, I think I think the prime points are covered on it all. Um, it, it, it's it's complicated and it's in depth, and I've only I've only touched the surface so far. Great. Well, Angel in the Shadows, Jay Jordan of Pegasus Ops. We're going to have links up on YouTube. We'll have yeah. links up through the podcast. And if you want to see more, click those links, see what Jay's up to. If you have it with you to be able to donate, it's a worthy cause. Consider it. Jay, thank you very much for being on the Silver Core podcast. I appreciate you having me on, mate. I really enjoyed it.